1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, part 2.
0: Continue here, and if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, first question, are you Sojourning, or are you earth dwellers? You know, when we study the book of Revelation, we discover that one of the primary groups that it talks about are earth dwellers. In contrast to us, we're not to be earth dwellers. We're just passing through. We're sojourning, as the old English term would have it. We're passengers. We're not citizens of this world. We look to a city whose maker is God, as Abraham would express it. So as we call on the Father who is outspoken versus judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We're just passing through, but we shouldn't be casual about it. We're to live according to His absolute standards as strangers. In fact, the word aliens will show up in, second, in, in the uh, next chapter. To the world's shifting and such. Situ- the world's values are not ours. First of all, they're shifting. They're not absolute. We we live in a culture of situational ethics. You have your truth, I have mine. No, no, no. The only truth we want is God's truth. He made the the place. He has the right to establish the rules. If you call on the Father and so forth, pass the time you're sojourning here in fear. That's a strange term. We're speaking, of course, of reverential fear. That should be evidenced by a tender conscience, a watchfulness against temptation, and avoiding things that would displease God. I often find myself doing things which displease God, and once I realize that, that should shock me. When I indulge in something that doesn't seem prohibited, that's not the issue. Is it pleasing God or not? Ooh, wow. That's a tougher Shoe to fit, isn't it? So, uh, avoiding things that would displease God. Forasmuch as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, of silver and gold, from your vain conversation or behavior again, received by tradition of your fathers. In other words, you were not, it wasn't the silver half-shekel. If you study Exodus chapter 30, the coin of redemption was a silver half-shekel. He's not talking about that. That was symbolic; it served a purpose under the old administration. Ye were not redeemed with silver half shekels or gold. You were. What were you saved by? The precious blood of Christ. Children of obedience should be should be strangers to their former empty way of life. That's what verse fourteen hammers, which was handed down from their forebears, since they were redeemed. That, and the word redeem means to be you know, purchased uh, by a ransom. And what were they purchased with? The precious blood of Christ. We covered that in the, in, uh, in the early development of this passage. Redemption itself is purchasing from the marketplace of sin a ransom not paid by silver or gold, which perish, but with the priceless blood of a perfect lamb. And that's what he pinned down back in verse 7. But here we go through. It was, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Without blemish and without spot is uh, a term from Passover. It's a Passover term. Jesus Christ was our Passover. That's a phrase used frequently, not only by John the Baptist, when he first introduces him in in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 29, twice when Jesus is introduced publicly by John the Baptist. He is, behold, the Lamb of God. That's a Passover term. Pointing to the fact that he was to be sacrificed. But to be qualified, he'd have to be without blemish and without spot. Without any defect of any kind. And so, uh, we find that uh, in the Gospel of John, so emphasized, and also Hebrews 9, and many other places, of course. Who verily was foreordained... Before the foundation of the world, but was made was manifest in these last times for you. Foreordained. Here we jump into this classic paradox of of predestination versus free will. But he was foreordained. When? When was he foreordained? He was not an afterthought. This was not a knee-jerk reaction when God discovered that Adam blew it. That was all foreseen and was prepared beforehand. God knew that He would and had provided in advance uh, before the foundation of the world. This was done before the creation in God's mind. Now remember from our previous studies in, in both Romans and Ephesians, we talked about this whole paradox of divine volition. Foreknowledge, election, and predestination. Tough terms. Okay, foreknowledge determines election. By knowing in advance, because he's outside time, foreknowledge determines the election. Predestination brings to pass the election. That's bringing what has been elected, bringing it to pass. Election looks back to foreknowledge, and predestination looks forward to destiny. None of this is a a difficulty If you recognize that we're dealing here with God's Word, and God is outside time. You and I are subject to certain physical constraints. One of those physical dimensions we know from 20th century science is time is a physical property, a physical dimension. God is outside time. That's not somebody who has lots of time. It's a God that's free from the constraints of time altogether. So he has foreknowledge, which leads to his election, which leads to predestination, which of course... Accomplishes the destiny. Each of those is a distinctive Greek term, and so used. And we've we've. Uh, this is by way of review. If this is uh, still a troublesome area, I encourage you to review your notes from the Roman study or from Ephesians. So election can be corporate. Israel, as a group, was elected. Isaiah 45. The church is also elected before the foundation of the world. The church was on God's mind. We also individually experience election according to the foreknowledge of God which he's already mentioned here earlier. It's holy of grace, not of merit. We're elected because God chose to elect us, not because we deserve it or have earned it. but But through election that he's certain are chosen for himself. God in his sovereignty selects People for specific jobs, specific roles, and, dis- and, and distinctive service. So praise God for that. And that great excitement, the great adventure in life is to discover what specifically has he appointed for you to do. And you'll discover that by discovering what unique gifts he's given you, what unique opportunities He brings across your path. That, now there's some interesting parallelism. I called this to your attention in the, in the earlier session where we looked at some overviews here. The parallels between this letter and Peter's sermons, recorded in Acts, are significant. 1 Peter 1.20 is, is really echoes Acts 2.23, and 1 Peter 4.5 echoes Acts 10.42. Very close parallelisms here. One of, the most distri- one of the most striking parallelisms are examples we'll encounter in the next session between, uh, for, uh, with uh, 1 Peter 2 and Acts chapter 4. In each of those passages, Psalm 118 verse 22 is quoted and applied to Christ. And that's about the, the, the stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. And it's interesting that Peter was present when Christ himself used Psalm 118 verse to refer to his rejection by the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21. When Christ did that, Peter was present. And you'll find Peter doing that in the next chapter. So it's interesting to see the, the consistencies here. But moving on. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Wow, okay. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. And, uh, the, the word sincere, uh, 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 unfeigned, is, is, is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy is what he's saying. All evil thoughts and feelings regarding one's brothers and sisters in Christ must be removed for his followers are to love deeply from the heart. And uh, in fact, the, very, the word there is actually fervently. Unfeigned love. Sincere, without hypocrisy all evil thoughts, feelings, and so forth. This kind of loving is a verb that emerges from agapeo, can only come from a changed heart, from one whose motives are pure and who seeks to give more than he takes. This love is to be expressed not shallowly, but deeply, at full strength, if you will, or in an all-out manner, with an intense strain, if you will. And he's going to echo that same word when we get to chapter 4 of this, of this letter. Heavy stuff. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's the challenge. This is not a motion you go through. It's something that has to be intense and complete. The positive result of obeying the truth is a purified life and the question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? How can a young man keep his way pure is the question that's answered by Psalm 119, verse 9. By taking heed thereto according to what? The Word of God. This is another reason why that same psalm, Psalm 119, advocates Scripture memory. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, the psalmist in, uh, uh, you know, implies. So, to each love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Well, all trials refine faith, so obedience to God's word refines character. One who has purified himself by living according to God's word has discovered the joy of obedience. A changed life should also be evidenced by a changed relationship with God's other children. A purified life allows one to love purely those who share the same faith. One of the things that we probably don't emphasize enough, you know, we, we, we always talk about you should love your enemies and should love everybody, sort of. <laughs> no, the ones that should get primary treatment are members of the body. You should have a special commitment, a special passion, a special. Um, love for brothers and sisters and uh, Paul hammers that and so does uh, uh, here is uh, Peter emphasizing that being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever so being born again Peter again reminds his readers that they had experienced the new birth and that's an echo from verse 3 we talked about that last time that born again is a supernatural event it's, that makes it possible for you to obey the truth and to purify yourselves and love the brethren you can't do it without that without that you're faking it it's, it's a form of hypocrisy it's a form of theater no, if you're born again it's, it's a supernatural event that makes it possible to really obey the truth, purify yourselves, and so on incorruptible not corruptible seed, incorruptible. Is incorruptible seed, is it corruptible? This change in their lives would not die because it took place through God's Word, which is imperishable living and enduring. And uh, the same word is used in, from verse 4, it was describing the believer's inheritance is incorruptible then we have another quote by Peter from the Old Testament. He obviously was very, very immersed in the Old Testament Scriptures. For all flesh is is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. And he's just quoting Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, that supports this exhortation, in effect, the exhortation from verse 22. All that is born of perishable seed withers and falls, but God's Word stands forever so what God has begun in you is eternal but the the word of the Lord endureth forever this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you James says pretty much the same thing in his letter he says of his own will begot he us with the word of truth the imperishable word of God was the content of Peter's preaching and that's basically echoing what we picked up in verse 12 his hairs must be affected by its life-changing power as integrated in the next chapter that we're going to touch on before we finish here. In fact, since we're running pretty comfortably time-wise, we've accomplished what I really want to accomplish here with chapter 1. Um, we'll uh, sneak a peek, if you will, at the next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Because of the first word of the next session is "Wherefore, what does that word mean because of what just he 's just said so these it 's a reminder in a sense that these chapter divisions are sometimes a little clumsy first peter two one wherefore laying aside all malice and all got and all uh, and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings that 's quite a mouthful. The wherefore is the reason we 're picking this up, even though we You know, we were in chapter 1. We'll pick this up as part of chapter 1. Wherefore, in other words, because of all that he's just said, in other words, this all derives from the previous chapter, repentance is called for. Peter then listed five sins of attitude and speech, which drives wedges between believers. Understand, his context here was to love the brethren. So his specific thing on his heart is our attitude among believers. Shouldn't be limited to that, but that's his focus, okay? The Greek verb expresses the idea of removing garments, laying aside, the word laying aside, uh, the the putting off all malice. And uh, Paul said the same thing back in in Ephesians, put off your old self, if you will, okay? The word malice kakai in in the Greek, is wicked ill will. The desire to inflict pain, harm, or injury on our fellow man. word malice. We have no room for malice. We are to lay aside all malice, is what he's saying here. I want you to notice all through here. All malice, all guile, all evil speakings. No exceptions, in other words. Laying aside all malice and all guile, guile or deceit, dolon in the Greek. That's deliberate dishonesty, falsehood, craft, seduction, slander, and treachery. Those are all terms that are uh, indicated here. Operationally, it is the antithesis of being a fiduciary. And I encourage you to dig out your notes on Ephesians 6, chapters 4 through 9. The concept of being a fiduciary. That's a concept that is astonishingly absent in many Christian bodies. If if you're in the professional world, that term should be very familiar to you. The word fiduciary means putting somebody else's interests ahead of your own. That's what a doctor is to do regarding his patient. That's what an attorney is to do regarding his client and so forth and so on. There are two kinds of relationships in the commercial world. What they call arm's length. Let the buyer beware or let the vendor beware. In other words, the idea is you do it with caution. That you, 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 you look out for yourself, so to speak. Arm's length transactions. Most of the commercial world uh, the courts would enforce a concept of arm's length transactions. There are exceptions to that that are very dear in the courts of law. And that's where a fiduciary relationship exists. That's not arm's length. That's the relationship, as I say, a doctor, patient, client to attorney, and so forth. A fiduciary relationship. That's also the relationship of a director of a corporation. He is the fiduciary of the collective shareholders, not just the shareholders that put him in office. That's a very important concept that professional directors should be very sensitive to. The concept of being a fiduciary. Why is that so important in the Christian body? Because if you're an employee of an employer, you, before the law, owe him 60 minutes for every hour paid. You work from 8 to 5, the rest of the time is yours. Or whatever. A fiduciary, that's not true. If you're a manager, or a officer of that corporation, you are no longer just an employee, you owe it a fiduciary responsibility. According to Ephesians 6, 4 through 9, you owe your employee your wholehearted commitment. It means you are, as a Christian, committed to protect their customer lists, protect their intellectual properties. To, you, you, you're a fiduciary of that corporation, even though you're just an employee, if you're a Christian employee. And so that comes as a surprise to many Christians. That, if you, that uh, from a biblical point of view, your relationship to your employer, uh, uh, and many people don't pick this up because it's speaking there of masters and slaves, which was the economy of that day. But it applies to the economy of, of today. It's the same thing. So, so we, we, But here, see, the whole idea of guile or deceit is the antithesis of the fiduciary relationship, which should be open, honest, and, and even going beyond that. Deceit and hypocrisy are twins. By deceit, a person is wronged, and by hypocrisy, he is deceived. So it's a package. We'll talk more about that as we go here. Hypocrisies and envies, Peter also lists in this list of sins. Hypocrisies and envies. What is hypocrisy? Pretended piety and love. Pretending to be what one is not. A man with a double heart and a lying tongue. As Jesus quoted Isaiah, to the Pharisees of their, their hypocrisy. It's um, been a private suspicion of mine that people who are in the professional theater have a tough time developing true intimacy. Because their profession have them continually pretending to be something they're not. And they take on a role. And if they're good at it, they really take on that role for the purpose of that performance. But I suspect, in my, privace, my private perspectives, I suspect that may start to erode their ability to maintain a relationship. And that may be one of the many uh, paradoxes of, of the entertainment way of life, which is characterized, of course, by uh, you know, marriage of, marriages of convenience and so on. Envy uh, is a, uh, uh, the resentful discontent. Uh, both hypocrisy and envy here in the, in the Greek are in the plurals. Hypotheses and envies are, uh, are they're in the plural. They're usually not con- confined to a specific situation. They tend to breed in dark corners, I might say, okay? Now here we have a whole other subject. And it's one reason I wanted to get into this where we had a little time to do this. Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Let me ask you a question. Now this, this here, by the way, speaks of slander, backbiting lies and so forth. None of these things that we've talked about should have any place in those who are born again. You're not born again. You are subject to these things. You're a slave to these kinds of things. If you're born again, you should be free of these kinds of things. So rather, in the obedience to the word, believers are to make decisive breaks with their past. That leads me to a subject here as we talk about evil speakings. What is... The most hateful, most painful sin. Many people would say murder, and I suppose you could defend that. I have another suggestion. What sin has probably caused more pain than any other of the sins? And this answer, my suggestion may surprise you. Leviticus 19, verse 16 and 17 says, Thou shalt not go up and down as a tail-bearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor, I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Exodus 20 verse 16, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. You know, I personally suspect that this commandment has caused more pain than thou shalt not murder. Proverbs 10. Proverbs really has a lot to say about this. He is in the way of life that keepeth instruction, but he that refuseth reproof erreth. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool. The word fool, by the way, in the book of Proverbs, is not somebody who's mentally deficient. It's someone who doesn't have a God-fearing posture. Uh, His life is not controlled by God. That's the fool. Important distinction. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. The tongue of the just is a choice is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. Gossip, I'm going to suggest, is the most painful sin. Gossip is a form of betrayal, and I hit this hard because it happens to be so prevalent in so many Christian bodies.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of First Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.